Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up, and I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And in this week's Friday follow-up, Mike, we've got a lot to cover. Yeah, we've definitely got some stuff to go over from not only this week's episode, but from what people had to say about our follow-up in the episode prior to that. Yeah, so it's been two weeks since we've done a a real Friday follow-up, because the Kenneth Ray Williams Friday follow-up was you asking me questions without listening to feedback because I was out of town. So I'm sure we have a lot to cover. I know you said you've got a bunch of questions about Kenneth Ray Williams, about our Friday follow-up about him, and about Ronnie Blackwell. So let's go ahead and get started. All right, let's do it. All right, our first post comes from listener Roger. Roger writes to us, perhaps things are different in Dallas, but I have never heard of a school kid refer to anyone working in a school cafeteria as anyone besides a lunch lady or cafeteria lady. How would they even know what specific things she does in the cafeteria? Now, when I first read this one, Bob, it struck me too, because I remember when I was in high school, I never saw the lunch ladies in the cafeteria. I think that every school is different, and and I don't know. I mean, I haven't been in Spruce High School and certainly wasn't there when Kia was there. But I've never been in or heard of a school that has a specific pastry chef. So it sounds like, to me, like what I thought was they've got quite an operation going at the Spruce High School lunchroom. Yeah. You know, it's not just a couple people throwing some slop together like kind of like we had in my high school. Uh, they've got something specifically that's cooking pastries. And then I remember like talking to Constance Jackson and talking to Sylvia and Loretta Christopher who talked about experiences about going in and key out always like, hey, I, I, I held out a specific you know cake for you or some kind of pastry for you. So I think that we're probably all, a lot of us are having a hard time relating to this because we didn't have this going on in our high school. But the impression that I got from everyone that we've spoken to that dealt with key out and dealt with the lunchroom at Spruce High School was it's almost like there was like a pastry station. You know, it's not like you're just going through the lunchroom and you're just, you know, like you see in a prison movie. You know, you've got different areas where you're going to get the different foods you want. And I I feel like there was like a pastry station where she cooked specifically, you know, donuts or danishes or whatever kind of pastries. That they were the tasty treats that the kids would go get from her specifically. 
And then also keep in mind that she had a personality based on what everyone has told us, where she was very outgoing and very sweet. Remember, like when Sylvia said that, you know, Kia would always greet her and say, hey, I saved you a special cake or things like that. So I have this like image in my mind of Kia working there where she was like the the favorite of a lot of these kids. You know, where they'd go up and see her. And, and there was, you know, we had one particular lunchroom worker uh, when I was in school, Mrs. Barrett. They used to always hook up the football players on Nacho Bar Day. And so, you know, of all the lunchroom workers, for me, like, we used to love on Nacho Bar Day to go see Mrs. Barrett because she would give us extra chips and extra stuff. So, like, I feel like they're, I, I don't think it's out of the ordinary for them to say she was the pastry chef. You know, because if, if that was a station they had in that lunchroom uh, where they specifically just made these pastries, it's a tasty treat somewhere kids might want to go. For, by all accounts, Kia had a very bubbly personality and was very sweet and generous. That uh, could be someone that sticks in their mind as the pastry chef, the one where they would go get their cakes from. But, I mean, we're speculating on all of that, but right. I don't think it's completely out of the question. Like, you know, like the, the listener there said, you know, it's just a lunch lady. Well, that may be true in his high school and wasn't mine. We didn't have a pastry station, but uh, if they did it theirs, it would be a completely different story. But then again, you recall even years later, you're referring to your, your lunchroom lady, not as the lunchroom lady, but by her name. That's Which... true. <laughs> but it was a little different because she was actually a friend of mine's mother. Okay. Is why I remembered her name. Gotcha. Um, and I only remember her last name because I know my friend's name was Andy Barrett. And her last name, was that was his mom. Okay. But I don't know what her first name was. You know, she was just Mrs. Barrett. But, but I mean, I, yeah, I get your point that it's possible. So, mm-hmm. so there's in, you know, that, that whole Crime Stoppers tip, you know, we're again really relaying people's information, you know, from a, a person to a police officer to report. So who knows? But I just I just don't think it's out of the question that someone would know that she was the pastry chef, I guess is my point. Okay, and then here are some thoughts from listener Aaron. My immediate instinct when it was mentioned that a close family friend or family member of Pete would have or should have known that he had already been incarcerated for four months is this. Snitches and informants are targets for horrific repercussions inside and outside of incarceration. I'm not sure if I think this tipster was an accomplice or a witness, but I do believe that they did know that Pete was incarcerated. I do believe that there was a sense of moral conviction, whether it be remorse or otherwise, that led them to call on the tip after they knew that they were out of Pete's reach. He was not only arrested, but indicted. It was the anniversary of Kia's murder. They were in a semi-safe zone from retaliation, and that person went for their last chance to try to redeem something of themselves in their mind. So let's go ahead and back up now and break these down point by point. So her first point is she thinks the caller does know that he was incarcerated. Right, and I would have to respectfully disagree with that, Uh, and that's based on the fact that at the bottom of the tip, the tipster told the police where they could find Pete, a.k.a. Kenneth Ray Williams. Remember, there was that address on there. So so they gave the tip and said, you can find him at this address. That's a weird countermeasure of some kind. If they knew that he was in prison, you would think they would say, you know, he's in prison right now. This is the person you're looking for rather than send the police on a wild goose chase and say, go to this address and you can find him. I disagree. I think that this person did not know that he was incarcerated. Now, was it specifically mentioned to the police that way, or was it just sort of another way for the caller to be able to identify to the police who Kenneth Ray Williams was based on his address? I think it said, and I don't have it right in front of me, but it said he can be located at this address. Okay. The address. Gotcha. Okay, and then her next point is snitches and informants are targets for horrific repercussions inside and outside of incarceration. So she's saying here that it's possible that they chose that time to snitch because he was incarcerated and they felt safer. I think that's what I got out of that. Correct. Yeah. But and again, I would go back to what we just said. I, I think that this person thinks that he's out on the streets. 
And her last point was she thought maybe there was some remorse or guilt based on the call coming in on the anniversary date. Yeah, and well, and I said that in the episode too, and I and I do agree with that. And I know we went over this in the Friday follow up when we were breaking it down kind of on the fly, but I've had even more time to think about it since then. And really, I think that the call coming in on the anniversary date is extremely telling because if this was uh, someone retaliating against Kenneth Ray Williams or someone just you know like making this up to get back at him, again, you you would expect that to come when they are poked or prodded. Yeah, You know, like like he did something to them that day and they're like, screw him, I'm going to call him in. There's no way he'd been locked up. And then and then so then you think, well, they're just maybe for the reward money. And I know we covered this before, but I guess just to, to go over it again, it's there is no more reward money. Mm-hmm. It's gone. There are no more flyers. There's no more of this happening. There's no way this person is being led to believe they're going to get reward money for this. Uh, and nor did they ask for reward money because the flyers were down. It had been a year since the case had been, air quotes, solved. Uh, and so then calling on that anniversary date, to me, something triggered this call. Could be, you know, maybe they're from the area, and maybe Ken Gove had some kind of memorial, something that, you know, and, and again, it, it brings me back to, and I don't think I mentioned this before, but the people we talked to who were close to Keao Constance and Loretta, who said that he had, like, a, a barbecue in her memorial, like, at least once. I don't know if it was every year or so. Could it be someone close, someone from the neighborhood, someone who did know her as the pastry chef, someone maybe whose mom knew her, who went over to the barbecue and was guilt-ridden from, I'm sure, if if something, you know, and we're spitballing here, but if something like that was happening on the anniversary date that could, and, and this person knows something, that could have been the trigger. But I think that's it. I don't think that... It could have been anything to do with something that Kenneth Ray Williams was doing right right then. Again, going back to whether they knew he was in prison, I just don't think that's possible because they told them the police where to find him. And there's no way Kenneth Ray Williams had done something to prompt this because he had been out of commission for months at this point. So I agree 100% that this call is very likely triggered by some sort of guilt or remorse one way or another. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, and then also talking about who the caller might be, longtime listener Christian writes to us, I don't know about the Crime Stoppers caller being an accomplice. I wonder if the caller is a counselor, pastor, priest, etc., someone that a victim of Kenneth Ray Williams disclosed to. The person was told about Kenneth Ray Williams molesting them, and the victim suspected that Kenneth Ray Williams murdered Keow. My guess is that the murder was mentioned publicly on the anniversary, and this counselor, pastor, priest, etc., perhaps decided to call on the tip. 
He relayed the information disclosed to him because he felt guilty for keeping the information secret or it had just recently been disclosed. This scenario would explain why the tipster didn't know Kenneth Ray Williams was incarcerated and didn't care about the reward. What are your thoughts? I, I can't say this is not a possibility. I mean, we can't say anything's not a possibility. I find it unlikely. There, there seemed to be a real personal connection with the, the tipster coming in. And then you have to remember, like, if this was like a clergy member or something like that, they're violating the law by doing by that. By doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Because they, I thought not... they would be obligated by law to disclose it. No. That's not the case at all. No, they're not allowed. So, like, it's it's no different than talking to your lawyer. Like, they are not legally permitted. If you, if you share something with a clergy member, a, a therapist, your lawyer, they are not permitted to share that information. And so for a clergy member to do that, I guess I could see what Kristen's point here is that if they were going to, they would do it anonymously. But it just seems, I don't know, it just seems counterproductive. And again, I think that this person is probably more personally connected to Kenneth Ray Williams and all that more so than just someone. And then I would have to think, so what was confessed? Did a family member tell this clergyman that they were molested and many members of their family were molested by him? And then they took that to mean he killed. There's just a lot of leaps you got to take there mm -hmm. um, to go from someone in a confessional to lead all the way to a clergy member breaking the law and disclosing something that was shared with him in a confessional. Again, I can't I can't rule anything out, but that se that seems unlikely to me. I guess I would say, in my humble opinion, that seems unlikely to me. Okay, we also had some listeners wondering if we checked into any TV or newspaper articles uh, on the anniversary date. Now, I know you mentioned Ken Gove liked to do uh, like a barbecue memoriam type thing, but do we have any record of any kind of media coverage of the case? As far as I know, we have all of the newspaper articles that were out there. Uh, we had some pretty good resources, people that were able to track and, and dig through years worth and find lots of articles for us. Don't have anything from that date, from the anniversary date. Four years later, in 1995, um, as far as TV goes, I just I doubt it. You know, you got to remember, it's not like you know where we live here. You now we have a, a population of 2,000 people in this town. If someone was brutally murdered 20 years from now on the anniversary date, we would hear about it. Yeah, this is Pleasant Grove. There's three, four hundred murders there, and 91, 500 murders there that year. Right? That year, yeah. yeah. So there's the you know the the local news isn't going to make a big deal about a murder that occurred four years earlier that was solved supposedly a year prior to that. I, I just don't see that being a thing, you know, and it definitely, as far as I know, it definitely wasn't in the newspaper. Yeah. It does seem a little unlikely. Okay. And here's an interesting theory from Ron. Ron suggests maybe Ken called in the tip line on the four year anniversary. He states he would be so vague. So the police wouldn't know it was him. The anniversary date is significant to him. The neighborhood rumors are about Kenneth Ray Williams, and maybe he used a phone book to get an old address. He may not have known Kenneth Ray Williams was arrested months earlier. If Ken thought they had the wrong man, Jesse, then maybe it caused him to want the police to look again at Kenneth Ray Williams, and at that point, he didn't know how else to get them to investigate further. So looking back at this, what really stuck out to me, Bob, was did Ken really believe in Jesse's guilt? I don't know. You know, I, I, I think that he, Ken calling in the tip is, is a little far-fetched uh, for a number of reasons I'll get into here in a second. But, but to answer your question, Jesse told me, that after the trial, when he turned around and said to Ken Gove, I didn't do this, Mr. Gove, I didn't kill your wife, that Ken Gove just put his head down, shook his head and said, I just don't know what to think anymore. 
So I know that after the trial, it seems that Ken wasn't convinced that Jesse was the guy. I mean, he, he Jesse described him to me as being, and you were on that call with us when we talked about it, he just seemed tormented. You know, it wasn't like, I don't believe you did it, but he just, it, it was tormented. You know, he wanted to believe that his wife's killer was was brought to justice. But I think that after sitting through that trial and seeing what a shit show it was, he knew, or he had to at least think that it wasn't Jesse. But that's after the trial. Prior to that, I would assume that he would think they had the right guy. You know, because what the police would have told him is, we found the guy, his brother was out jogging with him that day, and his brother witnessed the attack and came forward and wrote an affidavit. Yeah. Who doesn't believe that? Right. You know, when, some, when, somebody's... when someone claims their, their own brother did it. Yeah. So, so I don't see there being any possibility. So that's one reason. I don't see there being any reason at that point for Ken Gove to doubt that they had the right man. And then you have the fact that it's not like Kenneth Gove was quiet or timid as far as his communication with the police. I mean, he was he was pit. I mean, he was writing letters to the mayor, the police chief, he was calling Watts and Royster all the time, calling psychics. So it it would be very behaviorally speaking out of the ordinary for Ken Gove to say, "Hey, I want to point the police in a different direction, so I'm going to call in an anonymous tip." And then lastly, we have the the statement about, "Well, maybe he got the address from a phone book." That's not going to happen because Kenneth Ray Williams is not going to be in a phone book. You know, he's never been gainfully employed, which means he's never had an apartment in his name or a house in his name. So when the caller says he's, quote, staying at this address, it's literally he's staying at this address. We look at the statement from his brother, from his even his nephew and his accomplices in the other crimes. I mean, he just bounced. He was a bum. Yeah, I mean, he, he was a bum. He but he he bounced around from house to house and would shack up with people as long as they'd let him, and then he'd move on to the next place. So you're not going to look up Kenneth Ray Williams in the phone book and find his address. Also, it sounds like everybody knew Kenneth Ray Williams as Pete. So I don't see how how Ken Go would know him so intimately that he could track down an address for the police. I I just I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. All right, we'll cover this last point before we take a break for the ads. On Twitter, Paul writes to us, I don't think because a tipster doesn't want a reward ID, therefore must mean they believe their own tip is true. I can think of counterexamples involving someone knowingly giving a false tip for a variety of different motives. So if this could have been an intentional false tip, what would be some motivations for that? Well, like I said earlier, I think that uh, motivations for calling in a false tip, if the motivation is not for reward money, would be for revenge, I would think. And really, that's, I mean, there, there, I'm sure there are lots of other ones, but that's the one that sticks out in my mind that, you know, I'm I'm going to send this person to prison because they did X, Y, Z to me. Mm-hmm. Again, th- it's the timing. You know, it, it, it's you can pick apart any one piece of this, but when you look at all as a whole, the fact that the person doesn't say anything about a reward, doesn't ask for a reward, doesn't get a, give an ID for the reward, the fact that it's called in on the anniversary of the death. The fact that the person clearly, in my opinion, doesn't know that Kenneth Ray Williams is in prison. And then the big thing about the timing is the fact that Kenneth Ray Williams couldn't have done anything to this person any time recently to trigger the call. So so like if the motivation was revenge of some kind, it, it, it's not impossible, but it, it maybe it just happened to be that, say, this guy's sister came to him coincidentally on the anniversary of Kiao's murder and says he molested me and he's molested my sister or cousin, blah, 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 blah. 
And that person is like that son of a bitch. But then you have to think, well, then how did he know to call in? A, like, why Kiao's murder? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why, why when he actually was, not many people knew, but I guess people just right there in the neighborhood knew that he already actually was a suspect in this murder, that he had taken a polygraph and failed it already. I mean, that wasn't public knowledge. Nobody knew about the polygraph. I don't think even Ken Gove knew about the polygraph. But wh- why, if it's revenge he's after, intentionally calling in a false tip, does he pick, just out of a hat, this particular murder? Remember, he's a drifter. Kenneth Ray Williams is a drifter. You now he bounces from house to house to house. He happened to be for a few week period of time living in the neighborhood where she's killed. He's taken a polygraph for the. It's just like what are the odds of that? If it's just revenge, and again, there's not reward posters out. There's it's not being advertised on TV. There's not Crime Stoppers commercials asking for information for the arrest or indictment of the killer of Kiao Go because it had already been solved. So it's it's like when you take the totality of all of that into consideration. And then and then say, so what's the motivation for calling? In my opinion, and I'm not saying Paul's wrong or anybody's wrong, but in my opinion, when I look at everything, the most likely scenario is that the person who called in that tip believes that Kenneth Ray Williams killed Kiao Go. Doesn't mean that's what happened, but that's what that person believes. All right, that was a really good point, and the discussion's been really good. But let's take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and then we'll get right back to the show. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. All right, welcome back from the break. Next, I want to talk about something I covered on last week's follow-up from listener Kim. Kim writes to us about the three sexual assault charges against Kenneth Ray Williams. I was on a jury on a rape trial, and every different type of, quote, touching during a single sexual act was considered a separate charge i.e. finger, mouth, etc. I don't recall what all Kenneth Ray Williams did specifically, but maybe something like this explains the multiple charges. So do you remember we talked about that last week? And I think the conclusion we came to was that the prosecution would just throw as many charges at him as possible to see what would stick. Yeah, I think another listener wrote in and said it probably has to do with the booking sheet, so it's not even with the prosecutor. Okay. Uh, The police may charge them with multiple counts. But by the time it goes through the prosecutor, they review the charges, they go through their probable cause hearings and indictments. By the time Kenneth Ray Williams got to trial, there was just the one sexual assault charge. The What we were seeing was the booking sheets from when the police initially filed the charges, which is, yeah, like you said, they throw as many charges at him as they can uh, to see what sticks for trial. Gotcha. Okay, moving on, J.L. Whitaker writes to us, you totally lost me with the last three minutes of this week's program about the Z-28. Please unpack. Is Ronnie a suspect or not? 
Yeah, so we went back and listened to the last three minutes, and I assume the the confusion is coming in because we were reading Watts's report when he wrote Ronnie off as a suspect. And I think it wasn't just J.L. Whitaker here, but there was another couple of people that had wrote in and asked, you know, are we saying that he's not a suspect? That, those weren't my words. Those were Detective Watts' words. So I guess to unpack that, the point that I was making at the end of that episode was that Watts had a pattern of behavior. So he starts off the investigation with the Z-28 is the lead. He's after Ronnie Blackwell. He's chasing this lead all over town. He's going to the school. He's, he's talking to everyone about the Z-28 lead. Then on August 17th, he gets the Crime Stoppers tip about Kenneth Ray Williams. He goes and talks to Kenneth Ray Williams' nephew, looks into Kenneth Ray Williams, finds out that he's a convicted felon, he's actually in prison right now, all these things. And then on that same day, he writes a report that says that, oh, well, Jesse James Wendell said he saw the attack here and her body was found here. And Ronnie Blackwell said he was found at 1130 at night or 12 o'clock at night, not 7 o'clock in the morning. Therefore, this lead is not connected to the case. But it's very it's obvious what happened because all of the information, and again, it doesn't necessarily mean Ronnie Blackwell knows who killed Keal Gove. It doesn't necessarily mean that the Z-28 really was connected to the murder. But what we know is all things were pointing that direction. And as soon as he got a lead that seemed easier, literally on the same day, you have a convicted felon and you have a family member that supposedly is saying they have information that he's the one that committed the murder. Also, now all these leads are not important anymore. And what I was pointing out was the excuse that Don Watts used, saying, well, Jesse James Swindell pointed to a certain spot on the map, and that's not where her body was found, was a bullshit excuse. Watts himself had said many times that there was a secondary crime scene, that the attack started somewhere else. And yes, Jesse James Swindell pointed to that spot on the map, and then he said they left towards September, turned right on September, and hit the tire. And that's right where her body was found. So Jesse James Wendell's statement was not at all inconsistent with the details of the crime scene. And I was also unpacking there the statement from Mama Judy about looking for Ronnie Blackwell compared to Ronnie Blackwell saying that he was found at midnight that night. I mean, you have a guy that is either a suspect or a person of interest who is telling people that he knows who killed her, who was missing that night. And because he says, oh, no, they found me at midnight. Don Watts, the dogged investigator who gets reluctant witnesses to talk, just takes his word for it. It just it makes no sense. Don Watts walked away from the Z-28 lead because it required real police work, and there was a lot more work left to do, and he thought he had the killer served up to him, or at least a person that he could put the crime on served up to him on a silver platter with Kenneth Ray Williams. And those reports with the same date that happened on the same day really paint that picture pretty clearly. And then we see it again when, during the Kenneth Ray Williams investigation, he's starting, Watts is starting to talk to Troy Eldridge and try to get Troy Eldridge to talk. And as soon as he gets Troy Eldridge to write an affidavit in February, at that point, all of a sudden he's done with Kenneth Ray Williams. And he drops off the map. And with Kenneth Ray Williams, you have an even stronger suspect, given the fact that at that time, Watts put a lot of weight into a polygraph, gives him a polygraph, and he flunks it. So Williams was clearly a solid lead, even if he was looking into the Troy Eldridge, uh, Jesse Eldridge lead. He still should have continued to follow up on these leads about Williams. But it's it's obvious that Watts has a pattern of behavior. He's going to take the path of least resistance. And as soon as one lead looks easier than the one before, he throws the previous one away. So that's what I was saying. 
yes, in my opinion, Ronnie, I wouldn't say a suspect. Ronnie Blackwell is definitely a person of interest. I think that it is likely that he has information that could lead to finding Kiao's real killer. So let's talk about that really quick. The fact that you say that Watts has taken a path of least resistance, uh, it can't just be a guy being lazy at his job, right? I mean, I don't think it's lazy at his job so much as he's just, I don't think, in my opinion, that Don Watts has a determination to bring justice to these victims. I think that Don Watts has a determination to close cases, build his reputation, and climb the ladder Mm -hmm. in the police department. So it's not necessarily laziness. It's politically motivated. Yeah, he just wants to get it closed. Yeah. You know, and so it's path of least resistance. I mean, I think it's the right term. Maybe it's not, but it's not that, oh, this will be easier. I think it's this one is more likely to lead to a quick close to this case. You know, so it's, you know, we got to chase down all these people and there's a tight knit group of people. They're not talking. We got to find this D28. We got to blah, 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 blah. Or this person says, I have information that my uncle did it. Again, his reputation was that he's known for getting reluctant witnesses to talk. That's how he closes cases is by getting someone. So when he has somebody, air quote, talking about a convicted felon that they're saying did it, that's how he closes his cases. You know, he files. That's what happened with Jesse Eldridge. Zero physical evidence. He got one person to say they saw him do it. That's all it took. Well, at this point, he looks and it's looking like he's got somebody that's going to say they saw Kenneth Ray Williams do it. So he jumps. He goes that direction. But I think it's 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 about closing cases, propping up his numbers, and climbing the ladder for Don Watts. Okay, and before we move on, as far as people being confused about the Ronnie Blackwell episode, can you tell us who Perry is? Yeah, I saw a few people asking about that, and that was my fault because I was just reading right off the report. So Jesse James Swindell's name is thrown around all over these reports and is written many different ways. Uh, And in many of the reports, it says his name is Jesse James Perry Swindell. Yeah. And I avoided at the very beginning of the season the Perry name because Jesse Eldridge's name was Jesse Perry when he lived here in Michigan with the Perrys. And so then we come across this witness whose name is Jesse Perry, Jesse James Perry Swindell. Uh, and so we, we, yeah, so we went with Jesse James in order to try to make sure people were understanding the difference between the two. But his aunt, Mama Judy, referred to him as Perry. So Perry is actually Jesse James Swindell. He doesn't go by Perry now that I'm aware of. He goes by Jesse. Uh, but she called him Perry. So that's So Perry is simply Jesse James Swindell. As if things weren't complicated enough. Right. You know, remember way back months ago when we came across this, it's like, shit. Yeah. We've got a Jesse Eldridge who was a Jesse Perry, and we have this key witness that's Jesse Perry Swindell. So we were just trying to find ways to keep people from being confused, and I think sometimes it still ended up just confusing people even more. But that's who Perry is. Okay, and then we had a theory from listener Nick D., who thought maybe all these stories could be connected, such as the Grove Rats being in the Z-28, maybe doing a drug deal with Ronnie Blackwell, and somehow Kenneth Ray Williams was involved too. What do you think? Do you think all these stories could actually be true and be connected? I think it's a possibility. So the, the weird thing about this case is that the guy that got arrested and convicted is the guy that makes the absolute least amount of sense. Mm-hmm. There's no investigative leads that point towards him. There's no forensic evidence that points towards him. Uh, the polygraph test, again, continues to point away from him. All this. And then where we do have leads are all these different witnesses are talking about the white car. Uh, you know, Sylvia that we just talked to a few weeks ago and Judy and Jesse James Swindell. 
And then we have all the Crime Stoppers tips about Kenneth Ray Williams, and we have him failing a polygraph test. There's all these things that sound like pretty solid leads, way better leads than they ever had for Jesse Eldridge. But so then we look at it, it's like, well, there's a lot of things with both of these scenarios, meaning the white Z28 Camaro or Kenneth Ray Williams. I mean, Kenneth Ray Williams, there's a lot about him that looks like a good suspect, except for the fact, one, for me, that I don't think he'd be out walking around that time in the morning. And also, I don't believe there was a single attacker. But, I mean, failing the polygraph test, all the Crime Stoppers tips. Don't forget about Gladys Blanford, I believe's brother, who was ministering in the prison, who said an inmate told him that Kenneth Ray Williams told them that he'd committed the murder. Uh, and then the polygraph test, there's all these things pointing towards Kenneth Ray Williams, but then there's also all these seem to be, and we've broken down this Z28 lead, the, the Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Swindell lead. It's hard to find a motive for that statement unless there's, it's at least based or rooted in reality. We have Ronnie Blackwell, who was missing that whole night. No one knows where he's at. He has no alibi. So at the end of the day, I guess the answer to that question is, yeah. Like, I think it is possible that they're all true. Mm -hmm. You know, because we're trying to look at which one is, you know, it's, it's either the four dudes in the white Z28 Camaro or it's Kenneth Ray Williams. Well, what if Kenneth Ray Williams was one of the dudes in the white Z28 Camaro? Or if he was doing a drug deal with the guys in the white Z28 Camaro? And what if Ronnie Blackwell was part of that group or witnessed it or talked to somebody that was there? You know, to me, I guess I'll say this. It's easier for me to construct a theory that involves a white Z28 Camaro, multiple attackers, and Kenneth Ray Williams, and Ronnie Blackwell. It's easier for me to create a theory that involves all of those things than it would be for me to create a theory that involves only Kenneth Ray Williams, if that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. There was nothing, just literally nothing with Jesse Eldridge, other than Troy Eldridge's story, which he can't even keep straight himself as to what the story is that he told. Okay, and we have a couple points here from listener Jill. Now, we know she's been doing a lot of work on the case, so she's got some really good stuff here. Is this Jill Gillis? Yeah, Jill Gillis. was on the show? Okay. Yeah. And she caught something we didn't before. We confused Ronnie Blackwell's burglary of a vehicle from 1992 with the one from 1993. The one where Watts went to the police station in Garland to meet him? Yeah. Yeah. And so this was a really good catch. And it was just, you know, with all the these criminal background stuff, I just blew right past it. So what Mike here is talking about and what Jill is talking about is we knew that during the investigation, that when Watts was investigating Ronnie Blackwell, he went to Jesse James Swindell's house and asked where Ronnie was, and he said he had got picked up that morning for burglary of a vehicle in Garland, and he was in the Garland police station. Watts then says he went there and confirmed, yes, Ronnie Blackwell was there, and that's where he met him, and that's where he gave him the names of Chris Parks and Sammy and Sean or Shane Quayle and Chad Nelms. That was that report. Then we were going through his criminal background check, and we find the burglary of a vehicle on April 26th, I think it was, of 1992. And I just kind of blended those two together. But Jill pointed out the 1992 offense. That was a year and a half before Watts met him in Garland Police Station. Uh, but I believe, as she goes on there, the question is, what happened to that arrest? Because the 1993, the August 14th, I believe it was, 1993, arrest for the burglary of a vehicle in Garland, where Watts goes to the Garland police station and meets Ronnie Blackwell, is not on Ronnie Blackwell's criminal history. 
Um, so that was a huge catch for, on, on Jill's part. And um, so I, I, I'm a little ahead of this because I, I had actually connected with Jill after she wrote that. Uh, and I was working with her and again with Paul Day, our, our dream team down in Texas. <laughs> Paul is working on trying to get those records, and I'm doing the same thing from my end because we're trying to get the arrest records for the April 92 offense and the August 1993 offense. For 92, I want to know who was he running around robbing cars and houses with? You know, who was his, quote, crew at that point? And then for the 93, I want to know why that's not on his record. He had been caught, arrested, was at the police station when Watts went there, but his background check, from what I can see, shows no history for an arrest in 1993 for car theft. So that begs the question, maybe it was taken off his record. Yeah, so that's, it's, you know, it, was there a deal made? Right. You know, we're, and, and we don't know because, you know, Ronnie didn't end up testifying and didn't really have anything to do with it because it was literally three days later where Watts jumped over to the Kenneth Ray Williams lead. So there was no follow-up. Right. So it, I wonder if it could have been, you know, give me, you know, the, the names that he gave. Is it possible that Watt said, you know, if you give me some names, I can get you out of this. Gives him all those names and then poof, it's gone. And that's just speculation. We have no idea. Hopefully we'll know sometime soon. Yeah, really interesting. All right. And Jill has something else to contribute. And this is a real interesting theory. She writes to us, this may seem like it's a bit out of left field, but what if Kiel's murder was a sad case of mistaken identity? If indeed Mama Judy and Jesse James Swindell were out at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and again between 6 and 7 on the morning of Kiao's murder, and witnessed an abduction involving the males in the Z-28, and also drove by at least twice and looked into the Z-28 to see if Ronnie was in it, also add the fact that her truck would have been seen hanging around Kiao's house because the friend or girlfriend lived next door, and they were there to find Ronnie. What if the males in the Z-28 mistakenly identified Kiao as Mama Judy? What if they were parked in the area, witnessed Kiao leave her home, either that morning or some other day, and pulled up on her on September, jumped out and attacked, then drove off? Perhaps they thought she was the one who witnessed the abduction earlier that morning. This is just a thought. It's an interesting theory, and, and to kind of summarize that real quickly, what she's saying is that Mama Judy was running around, poking her nose around the neighborhood, and was parked near Kiao's house that morning. Uh, even says that she'd looked into the car, so... What if she saw them abducting some other woman into the car? Later on, they see Kia walking. They think that she's Mama Judy. They attack. So, like she said, a case of mistaken identity. I think it's possible, but unlikely, I think, for a couple of reasons. Number one, Kiao looks nothing like Judy. You know, Judy Kiao was an, an Asian woman. Uh, she had a darker complexion and dark hair. Judy is a Caucasian woman. I don't know much about how she looked. I just know that she was described as being Caucasian. And more importantly to me would be, uh, behaviorally speaking, if this group of guys in the Z-28 are around the neighborhood causing problems and actually commit a crime, an abduction of a woman in their car, I just can't see any scenario where they continue to hang around that same neighborhood all morning. You know, wait for an hour in case somebody walks by. You know, if they, if they actually did commit a crime, if, if the abduction of the woman in the car was someone other than Kiao, you would, one would assume that they're just going to get the hell out of there. They're not going to keep lingering around, especially knowing that they have been spotted, uh, which would be have to happen in order for this theory to fit, that they've been spotted a couple of times by a witness. And so this witness is in a car or truck driving around. She's looked into the car. So in their mind, if this scenario were accurate, she's seen them. She knows their license plate. She has all the information to turn them in. She saw the abduction. 
one would expect that person to go to the police station or call the police and give them that information. And so you would expect that the police were out looking for you, so you get the hell out of there. It's it's just an odd scenario to think that they would be in that situation where they think somebody witnessed the crime, has that all information, and think, well, let's hang out here for another hour and see if they come back and we'll get them. They, had, they would have no way of knowing that they were going to get out of the car. I just... So for a lot of reasons, I think it's a good thought, and, it, and it's, it's well thought out, and, and I think that's where a lot of us are at right now. We're starting to take all the evidence and try to piece together what might have happened. Uh, but that one, I think, once we break it down to, you know, behaviorally speaking, it seems unlikely to me. All right, and lastly, a lot of people have been blowing us up on social media about a man named Marcellus Williams from St. Louis, who was scheduled to be executed last night and was granted a stay by the governor. We were going to have a couple questions on that, but it looks like we're going to get into it in depth on Sunday. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, you know, th- this was happening kind of between episodes, and I was trying to track it on social media. This is a big deal, folks. Marcellus Williams was within hours of being murdered by the state of Missouri for something that it looks like he very likely didn't do. And so we're actually going to get into that case in depth on Sunday, like Mike said, because I think this is something that we should engage in and see if we can do something to help out Marcellus Williams. So look forward to that on Sunday. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank our transcription team, Britta, Stephanie, Tammy, and Sarah. And also a big thank you to Desiree for printing off all of our transcripts and mailing them out to Jesse. And as always, thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Poison Ivy. I got Poison Ivy. You're fine, man. <laughs> You're overreacting. I got Poison Ivy from... From what? The listeners want to know, Bob. From what? Say <laughs> This is not relevant to the episode. Can we just get this out of our system so but, we can continue? That You made me... I itch. My forehead itches. It does not itch. It does, too. My ear itches now. You made me get that dog pen from... There was little... I asked my buddy to help me go get a dog pen that you claimed was riddled.
with vines. We we confirmed. We confirmed it, Mike. The, 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 <laughs> the Google image search. The confirmed girl, it. Yeah, that those vines that were throughout, strewn throughout the chain link fence were were poison ivy. Do you have any? Do you have any signs? Any actual physical bumps or anything? I'll tell skin? you what I have is I have a buddy that took me out to this place who had previously inspected the location that wore jeans and a long sleeve shirt. While I was wearing a sleeveless t-shirt and shorts. <laughs> that was a coincidence. It was a chilly morning. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Can we get back to the episode? Yeah. I'm going to need you to not do that <laughs> so that we can continue with the recording. What? This? Yeah, that. That sound pleasant in your headphones? No. No, it's very disturbing and distracting. What is that? What? Is, what are you trying to like sound like? Like a mouse. That's not what a mouse sounds like. <laughs> when was the last time you heard a mouse? <laughs> it's been a while, but not, I know they don't sound like that. All right. Are you tell me that's not what a mouse sounds like? No, nah, that's not what a mouse sounds like, dude. <laughs> what do you think Just... they sound like? <laughs> woof, woof. Yeah, Bob, that's what I think a fucking <laughs> mouse sounds like. Moo. I think that you had one of those wheels when you were a kid where you pull the string, but like <laughs> so some, made somebody wrong sound. Somebody ruined your life by putting the stickers in the wrong place. So so now I th- I've, so like I've, I've grown it, up thinking that the, all animals have different sounds. That mice moo. My, mice do not. Like when, when you hear mice like mice don't moo because somebody <laughs> changed the stickers on my play toy when I was little, a baby. The little arrow was pointed at the duck and you pulled it and it went. <laughs> like the duck it's, makes us. It's really not that funny. <laughs> it's on the dog. It goes quack quack quack. quack. <laughs> Why do you think that's so? That's dumb. Because you don't know what a mouse sounds like. I know like. a mouse doesn't sound like that. You like if you went through your whole life like <laughs> there's a frog. Woof woof. <laughs> we call the frog over here. This is my life. This is my life. Look, it's a sheep. Cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. That was kind of good. I've got a whole mental image. That's kind of funny. Of a, fucking, of a wheel with the stickers and wrong, wrong places. It's just like, you imagine how you can mess with a kid's mind? It'd be terrible. <laughs> terrible. Terrible thing to do to like, a child. Like, look, a lion. There's, there's, there's an elephant. Yeah. Yeah, like a lion. Yeah. An elephant's making a lion sound. <laughs> look at the cow. Nay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Let's do it together. Like the, right? Yeah. Like one, two, three. Truth, Truth and, and justice. justice. Sorry, one more time. Okay. Wait, so. Is this going to be one, two? Truth, Truth and, and justice. justice. You said it. You said it like weak sauce. Okay. Here, here, here. Uh-huh. Truth, truth and justice. justice. How about I just say truth and justice? Yeah, I think maybe. I mean, it's you know, this is your thing, dude. Truth and justice. That's a fucking mouse, dude. <laughs>